What you want more than anything is you want to meet people with different experiences. And I've always sort of found you would see things that you would not automatically have come across. Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I'm Scott Chaloner and in each episode I'm joined by a director, a CEO, a CFO, a government minister, a chairman, a president and who knows maybe one day even the Home Secretary depending on how her cabinet office inquiry pans out. The aim here is to discover who these people are, the people who get up each morning and make this country work. We discuss everything, particularly coronavirus-related matters of keeping operations alive and helping firms survive, and of course the innovation and success that makes it all entirely worthwhile in the end. We also get their take on the current economic and political landscape here in the UK. I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Paul Newsham, Managing Director of the RFM Group, a multifaceted accountancy firm headquartered in Lancashire. In the space of just two years under Newsham's tenure, RFM has almost tripled in both turnover and the number of staff on its payroll. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I present Paul Newsham. Paul, very warm welcome to you and thank you very much for joining us on the air today. Thank you, Scott. Yes, nice to hear from you again. It's um, nice to hear from you again, Paul. Now, your business, of course, specialises in providing accountancy, audit and tax planning and advisory services, of course, for a wide range of clients in many different industries. Tell me, in light of the current COVID-19 situation, how is it being trying to navigate the last few weeks in your line of work? Because I can imagine it's posed a huge challenge. Um, yes, it, it did, actually, Scott. Oh, you know, as soon as... Um lockdown uh, arose and obviously the government brought out the various um, initiatives. We became the um, conduit for the government's um, uh, program of uh, business loans, etc. We had lots and lots of questions regarding, uh, you know, the job retention scheme because obviously people were actually worried about that. And over the last two weeks, obviously, well, not last two weeks, last few weeks, um, we've been responding, you know, constantly on a daily basis to clients' queries, concerns, worries, and keeping them up to date on a regular basis, whether it's via phone calls, social media, emails, um, to inform them of the changes as they have um, arisen. So it, it's been quite a challenging time. Mm. And we've heard some amazing stories, nonetheless, uh, during this difficult time about staff at businesses just mucking in and getting on with it, whether they've had to work remotely or even go into the sites that they've been working at. And I imagine from the work that you've done in helping your clients, and it's been the same for yourselves as well. Everybody at RFM has really, really mucked in and come together at this time. Yes, they've all adapted very well. All all 50 staff are now um, working remotely. Luckily, we, we'd invested considerably in computer systems and our um, platform, so we, in effect, can work uh, remotely from home. So, we, you know, that investment is, is actually uh, both fruit and dividends now. Um, you know, we constantly, you know, because staff are working from home, it's a different kind of environment for them. So we are, you know, constantly via our HR uh, directory and personally, contacting them on a regular basis just to make sure that they are okay, um, you know, they have enough work to keep themselves occupied, and more importantly, just check up, check up on their, their kind of well-being. 
um, because like I say, it is a challenge for them, but, um, you know, people have had to adapt. Exactly. The ability to adapt has been hugely important for business during this time. And in your over 20 years experience within the field, uh, Paul, have you ever encountered challenges like this in your career before now? Or is it very much unprecedented times, as um, we've heard said so many times? Uh, I think it is unprecedented times. Um, and I hope, I hope we never have to deal with something like this again in, you know, in my lifetime anyway. Um, but what... Um, what I've found is that you know people tend to fall into almost like three stages in their response to the, you know this particular crisis. You know, I found that initially people um, panicked. You know, did, mm. you know they wondered, you know, can clients pay me? Can I get supplies? What happens if people, you know, stop buying from me? Um, and that created a bit of paralysis, I think, at the beginning. Um, you know, people were looking at things negatively, which was understandable. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that people were holding on to um, money um, a lot longer than normal, were paying bills, because, of course, there was all that uncertainty. But then the second stage after that is then to maybe, you know, take a step back, evaluate, um, you know, where you are, um, deal with, you know, the... Uh, the crisis as it's arisen, um, you know, have a look at what the impact has been, uh, how you can adapt and try and plan um, plan your, your way out of it, really. Um, and then the third stage is obviously looking at you know, the opportunities. You know, you take advantage of whatever help or support is out there and adapt your business model to continue generating income. You know, you need to explore new routes to market, spot opportunities um, and try and adapt. You know, for example, I have a client that is um, uh, a wholesale wine distributor. Um, His whole market disappeared overnight. Mm. But we've had to help him and discuss with him ways he can change his business more to a retail model um, and, you know, look for different types of customers so we can actually realize the cash that's tied up in his stock. Um, but that's an ongoing process, and it's not something that um, you, you can wait to see what happens. It's something that you maybe need to deal with now um, in anticipation of what might happen in the future. I think um, I can see where you're coming from uh, there, Paul, because a lot of businesses are being sort of sucked into panic mode at the moment, aren't they? You know, in that sort of rut of being reactive um, and making snap decisions as opposed to taking that proactive approach to addressing the crisis. Just because I think some people might might think with all of this uncertainty going on, it's difficult to kind of see what the long term is going to look like. But ultimately, as you've said, the market will be changing and businesses will have to innovate to seize upon the opportunities that will be there because as uh, more market capital becomes available, because some businesses inevitably will not make it through this period, there will be opportunities there for others, of course. Uh, yes, of course. Um, you know, the government have brought out initiatives and to be fair to them, uh, because they've been adapting, you know, the different initiatives, you know, the job retention scheme, mm. the business support loans, the recent one that came out this week, the, you know, the small kind of, boost loan of £50,000, you know, they are they are listening um, and, and adapting and trying to actually provide that support to business. But, you know, there are businesses that unfortunately, you know, will fall through the cracks, so to speak. 
um, because you know one size doesn't fit all. And um, you know, as these new initiatives come on board, then people take advantage of them. But in some cases, it, you, you know, they may find it's too late, unfortunately. And where do you think the big gaps are in the uh, the government's raft of support measures? Because they have announced a lot of different uh, schemes to help safeguard businesses, but fundamentally, they're also preventing a great many of them from performing their functions day to day as well. I think the gaps are, are mainly in respect of um, the support given to uh, business owners at the end of the day. Um, you know, if you've got a business where you can't below your staff, then um, your biggest problem is then obviously paying those staff, generating the income, and actually getting the cash in. Now, obviously, the business support loan um, helps with that, um, but at the end of the day, you know, the main thing is it, it is a loan um, you know, that has to be paid back at some point in the future. Um, I find it with some clients that they are reluctant to actually, you know, take out further loans mm. for the business, um, and are um, trying to live off what resources they have in the short term. Um, it's, it's you know it's very difficult for, for them, and, and I think that's where the, the the gap is where you've got you know, a small to medium sized business owner that is taking on a great deal of risk and debt to actually carry on. Whereas if 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 they were able to below staff, you know they would have that benefit. But you know you, you know there are some that um, that can't because technically they don't actually qualify for it, and their only way out of it is to really borrow. Exactly. And for those um, businesses, especially, it's a little bit of a slippery slope, isn't it? Because ultimately, they're reluctant to borrow, as you say, because they know that they will be feeling the pinch in future because it is a loan and it will have to be paid back. Yeah. And at the end of the day, that, you know, that loan, for example, if you take out a loan of £100,000, uh, yes, it can be repaid over six years. And yes, you know, the government will pay the interest for the first 12 months. But you know, you've got to generate profit in the next six, six years to actually actually repay that loan back. And of course, if you actually make profit, then you have to pay tax on it. So there's almost a bit of a double whammy there. Um, but, um, you know, that's, that's the fact of life, really. And there's no guarantee, of course, with that as well, that um, the market is going to revert to normal straight away and that making profit is going to be possible in the short term. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Now, um, you're, of course, um, Paul, um, very experienced um, in your line of work of assisting clients um, during this time and really helping them understand the support that's available to them and helping them sort of gather the various bits of evidence that they might need to qualify for such support measures. Um, Are there any examples of positive outcomes in this sense from clients that you've been working with who have managed to access that support and have benefited from that? Yes, we've had some recent successes in the last um, week or so, obviously, like I mentioned before, people were actually reluctant to actually borrow, but some businesses that, that we've helped, for example, we've helped hospital, sorry, a hospitality services group that has pub restaurants and hotels, and we've managed to help them secure um, a support, lo- support loan of £220,000. Likewise, we have a small distributor of uh, hygiene equipment and parts. We managed to help them secure a loan of 100000 And we have a medium-sized financial uh, services business that we managed to help them um, 
again, a loan of in excess of £200,000. And in all those cases, our, our role was basically proving to the um, the lender that um, you know the client was viable, it was profitable before the actual crisis arose, and put projections together and cash flows to demonstrate what the shortfall would be for the next few months. And then obviously how potentially it could turn around to service that debt in the future. And then obviously putting that in a package and supplying it to, to the various um, banks in question. And then, of course, if any questions came back from the bank, then we de- dealt with those questions to help um, get to a, a positive and a successful outcome. And of course, um, your numerous clients as well, uh, Paul, uh, come from various different sectors. Of course, you work with charities, non-profits, hospitality and leisure clients, retail and construction as well. Um, what have they had to say about how the crisis is affecting them, as well as, of course, the difficulties in trying to qualify for these um, support measures? Well, I think, I, th- I think the main group that is suffering a great deal is obviously hospitality, um, you know, pubs and restaurants. Um, there's quite a lot of uncertainty as to how long this will actually um, carry on and when lockdown will end. And, you know, the feeling in general is that, you know, pubs, restaurants, hotels, etc., will be the last kind of uh, people that um, it, 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 it will affect. Um, and obviously, even even if social distancing continues in some, some shape or form, it's still going to have an impact on those businesses going forward. You know, for example, if you have a bubble restaurant and um, we've all got to sit, you know, six feet apart, then obviously the number of covers that that particular restaurant can can actually service is reduced. And then, mm. of course, the profit will have reduced. So, you know, the, it's a very difficult sector, uh, hospitality at the minute, and that's where most of um, the clients that are struggling in my client base are... Um, you know, the ones that are most worried. Perfectly understandable as well, because we don't know when, of course, the likes of hotels, restaurants, bars will start to uh, to reopen. So they are really feeling the strain. And then if we sort of look at the flip side to that, um, looking at the construction sector, for example, I mean, they very much had to uh, keep working and keep going into sites in some cases. And that also comes with its own set of challenges as well, doesn't it? Um, yes, it does. Um, obviously, they've got to try and continue, but maintain the social distancing. Um, but you know, obviously, if construction is continuing, then obviously that's going to knock on effect with the people that actually supply whoever is doing the construction. So, you know, something has to continue to keep the economy going. You're absolutely right there. And um, if, of course, the supply chain to the construction sector um, has uh, closed down as well, there's also restrictions there. But interestingly, while we are on this topic, um, there was one managing director of a particular business who did get in touch with us, and I won't name names, but he said that regarding the construction industry and builders being expected to continue working, he said that it's not safe to operate in the workplace and there's no way that a builder can guarantee adherence to social distancing rules, either travelling to work, working on site or travelling home. And also they can't guarantee that surfaces at the workplace are clean and free of the virus at any time. And them as a business, they were being forced to return to certain sites with the threat of penalties if they don't comply. Um, So he was quite alarmed by what he perceived as a real lack of government consideration for the safety of construction workers. Um, do you find that maybe some of your clients have aligned with those views and perhaps would agree with that? 
Yes, I did actually find that because I have one client that um, supplies kind of specialist uh, lifting equipment mm. um, for the construction industry. For example, if you've got a panel of glass that uh, needs to be lifted into a, a skyscraper, for a want of a better word, um, they were still being asked to actually go on site um, and um, continue supplying. Um, you know, some of the issues that they had was that you know their members of um, staff were being asked to you know go in lifts together with other people, um, and obviously they were very worried by that. And obviously, you know, the actual staff were worried by that. And I think some of them were being put in an unfair position, like you say, because of penalties and um, timetables that they had to stick to. And, and yes, I do agree that you know they have been put in a position where maybe they shouldn't have been or some sh- sh- sort of measure should have been you know, put in place to um, protect them. So if you could essentially be the Prime Minister yourself just for the day, Paul, um, would you do something differently in aid of the uh, construction industry in particular and even also the hospitality sector as well? Yeah, I think I would personally have given it a bit more, more thought and asked um, you know, a few more questions to how, how those people could have been... Um, you know, protected. Um, you know, obviously, you know, people travelling into London on um, the tube and various things like that, um, you know, really expose people mm. um, to the virus when maybe they shouldn't have been. And I think, you know, maybe, you know, some lockdown measures sort of sh- should have maybe come in a lot earlier than what they actually did. But at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's, it's a very difficult call for anybody because of, you know, the impact it has on the economy and has had on the economy. Absolutely right. Um, we were much slower off the mark in terms of the lockdown for certain, because if you compare it to um, Italy, for example, Giuseppe Conte um, put their country into lockdown, um, I think on March the 9th, and the UK didn't follow suit until the uh, the 23rd. And again, it highlights the importance that's, um, depending on how you look at it, um, of taking a proactive approach, doesn't it? As um, you've already uh, discussed, um, especially in the business environment. Uh, yes, it does. Um, and just to give you another example, I have a client that, that lives in Milan. And, you know, I, I spoke to him um, a few weeks ago when, you know, their lockdown was probably more severe than what um, ours, ours is. Um, you know, they, they were convi- confined to the house. They weren't allowed out. They were having food deliveries. Um, so, you know, um, you know, things are difficult and have been difficult. Um, and maybe procedures should have been brought in a lot earlier than what, what they were. Yes, um, I can certainly see where you're coming from, Paul. And what's interesting about Italy as well is that they have been in lockdown for, I think, over seven weeks um, from uh, March the 9th. Um, and recently, since their daily death toll has uh, fortunately come down to below the 300s, they're now announcing measures to start easing that lockdown um, over the uh, the next few weeks. And they expect that bars and restaurants may be able to open as early as the beginning of June. Um, over here, however, um, of course, our death toll has almost doubled that still in hospitals, even though it has been declining and still when you add the uh, the care home um, rate of uh, deaths to that as well, it's still so quite high in comparison. But already we're seeing some firms here, the likes of B&Q, for example, and Taylor Wimpy already beginning to reopen as the lockdown continues. Do you think that that's the right thing to do? Um, 
there's, there's two ways of looking at it because at the end of the day, you know, we are all going into supermarkets um, and the social distancing there. If you go go into a B and Q warehouse, you know what what is the difference? Um, yes, it might be an, an unessential kind of um, reason to go out, but from that business's perspective, you know what is the difference between B and Q and social distancing and uh, supermarkets? But um, the um, you know it's it, it's a difficult call either way. That you know, businesses have to survive, and um, you know, B and Q did you know shut down, but they are process construction or whatever, and they could have really been open. Um, it's a, you know, it's a very difficult call as to um, you know which, which businesses can open and when. Um, you know, and obviously, you know, like we said with hospitality and that, there's the there's the issues about you know when it opens and how, how things can um, continue. For example, if, if if the government decided that at the end of July that all pubs and restaurants could open, um, they need a lead time because there wouldn't be enough beer in the system to actually supply all the pubs and restaurants. Um, so there's got to be you know some planning in respect of how lockdown, um, you know, how, how we're all released from lockdown and the practicalities of, of getting back to normal. I think you're absolutely right, Paul. Um, there has been widespread calls, of course, for um, some kind of exit strategy from the lockdown and some indication of what that new normal might be. I mean, when those businesses are allowed to reopen, the conditions under which they will have to operate. And with Nicola Sturgeon in, up in um, Scotland at Holyrood, of course, now having unveiled a blueprint for an exit plan that will come out in the next few weeks, we're now starting to see um, the central government in Westminster starting to look at their future uh, plans as well. Um, I did actually read a piece in the uh, the Telegraph this week which suggested that um, draft plans for the new normal will be submitted to uh, to Downing Street this week and it will include public transport of course operating at significantly less capacity. I think it was 50% for uh, tube carriages. There will have to be uh, crowd control going into uh, train and um, underground stations. Um, so albeit the full exit strategy is not forthcoming, it's going to yield some huge changes when it does eventually come out, isn't it? Yes, you certainly will. I think, um, you know, businesses, um, well, one need um, to know that particular plan, then they can plan accordingly. Um, and, you know, it's very important for a business to, to, to actually know you know, when things are going to happen, how they're going to happen, then they can, you know, adapt their business. Um, but what I think will happen, because businesses have adapted to the lockdown, you know, they may look at their own uh, systems, staffing requirements, etc., and have a, you know, a good look at their businesses and, you know, reevaluate their, their position. So I think, you know, lockdown and the virus has probably made business owners look at things differently um, and you know they may adapt their own business models uh, because of that and we've even seen it with those businesses that have been operating uh, normally throughout this pandemic and of course supermarkets such as tesco for example have introduced social distancing when people have been visiting um, supermarket premises um, but the 
on their online capacity has increased um but well over a hundredfold now i think um tesco's online capacity was revealed this week by their ceo dave lewis has gone up by 103 percent and they're now actually providing more than one million online delivery slots nationwide and that's just one example of how business and the way that we do business is shifting isn't it as part of this uh, yeah yes it is um you know, they had to adapt and, not, you know, there, you know, there's lots of vulnerable people out there that uh, needed to actually shop online. I think the initial problem that people found was obviously they couldn't find a, a slot because they were that busy um, to get, you know, to organise deliveries. So, you know, the likes of the supermarkets, you know, did have to adapt to meet that um, increased demand. That's absolutely right. Um, now, for the benefit of the uh, the listeners, um, we are recording this episode on April the 29th, 2020. And when you last came onto the air with us, Paul, and spoke to my colleague, Matthew O'Neill, on January the 31st, um, you indicated that Winston Churchill sprung to mind as one of the greatest leaders of all time. Um, how do you think that he would have responded to a crisis like this, especially having taken Britain through a war? How, how 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 Winston Churchill would respond to the crisis? Yeah, how, how, how do you think? How, speculate on how do you think he might have responded to this? Yes, I think, I, I think to be fair to, to our own government, he, he he would have probably responded in a similar kind of um, way. The, the only difference maybe that he may have uh, done it a lot quicker. Um, but other than that, you know, I think to be fair to the government, they have. You know, I actually stepped up to the plate, so so to speak, listened and provided the support that, that businesses require. And hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? We can, of course, look at the um, the approach that the government has taken and say quite easily that some action should have come quicker. Um, but really, I think um, in one sense, um, they're doing all that they can, but it's now just a case of filling those gaps where they can be filled that we've already discussed today. Yeah, I think that's correct, Scott. Um, and I, I, I think it, 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 it's kind of a moving kind of uh, model. And as the cracks appear and, and, and people um, you know, voice their opinions or, or you know, basically demonstrate where the cracks are, then all we can ask is that the government adapts and try and help, help those people as fast as possible, really. I think... Um, you know, like in respect to the job retention scheme, you know, that was mentioned, um, you know, four or five weeks ago, but it took four or five weeks for the actual website to be launched. Um, and obviously, you know, people needed that money a bit quicker than what they actually received it. But, you, you know, the actual logistics of building a website that could cope with, I think they said, 450,000 applications an hour is a, is a massive challenge. And to have done it in the, the you know, the period four or five weeks, you know, I, I would say is, um, you know, a good thing. And they've actually done very well to get to that particular position. Exactly. And um, we've seen similar criticism as well of the um, the personal protective equipment shortage as well on the health front, because um, it's been a huge procurement challenge for all countries, not just the uh, the UK. And there have been noticeable shortages of PPE for frontline workers. But again, when you look at the logistical operation that's already gone into it, I mean, it's quite staggering that already what has been sent to the frontline has already managed to get there. I, I, I agree with that, Scott. At the end of the day, you know, it's an unprecedented um, event in our lifetime and, you know, people have actually 
the Alpine stepped up to the plate and tried to react as quickly as possible. You know, it's a massive logistical uh, challenge for the government um, in respect of that equipment and in respect of, you know, providing people with, with the support that they need. Um, you know, very difficult to deliver things quickly. Um, you know, there'll always be criticism as to whether you could have done it, you know, a lot quicker, but, you know, uh, hindsight is a wonderful thing. Exactly right. And if we do think about the uh, the future and what that might bring now, um, I, I recall that when you did speak to uh, Matthew back in January um, on um, the previous podcast, um, you mentioned that over the next 12 months that the RFM group would be looking to expand the business where possible and indeed its offering of services and that this next year you were hoping would yield further growth. I assume that has been put on hold by the outbreak. Um, it has been put on hold to some extent, but Having said that, um, in the last four or five weeks, uh, an opportunity has arisen where we could take on an RFM Manchester office and a small block of fees. So, you know, that's actually happened and is in pro- progress. Um, as to whether, you know, that will continue for the rest of the year, the year um, I'm, I'm not 100% sure whether that will be the case, but, you know, opportunities will arise. Um, it's just a case of whether they are you know, worth taking on or not. Um, yes, it is different than when I spoke to Matthew, but you know, business continues at the end of the day. Um, and who knows what might you know uh, turn up in the next you know six six to twelve months? You just deal with something as it arises, and if it is a good good opportunity uh, and profitable, then yes, you will continue to look at it and take and maybe take it on board. So if we think about um, what you envision for the uh, the next year, I imagine it will be a case, as you say there, of weighing up the opportunities that are available, deciding which um, opportunities to pursue and looking to make sure that the growth of the business is sustained throughout this period. Yes, that'll be the case, Scott. I think uh, that's very much the plan going forward now. I have to say, Paul, um, it's been incredibly insightful and also an absolute pleasure once again having you on um, the uh, Leaders' Council podcast series. And I don't see why we couldn't, in a few months' time, once again have you back on the air for a third time to look at what we've said today retrospectively, catch up on how the business is doing and also reflect on just how things in the market have developed and how those hopes and ambitions at the business have also borne out. But for now, thank you ever so much for taking the time to come onto the programme again and speak with me today. Thanks, Scott. And, um, you know, stay safe, safe and well. Thank you. I would um, say exactly the same to all of our listeners. Do stay at home and do stay safe. It will save lives. Thank you. That was Paul Newsham, Managing Director of the RFM Group. I hope you all enjoyed the interview and, of course, learning more about how the whole team at RFM is continuing to raise standards even throughout this challenging time. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet, and having served as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in August 2015. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett. And that's coming up next.
Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff, and of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's severe illness but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown uh, local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future so i think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods uh, including for instance shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system um, the food chain and the like uh, but also i think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging, I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blanket. Thank you. As always, it has been an absolute pleasure listening to and learning from our guests. I and Matthew O'Neill hope you all enjoyed listening. Until next time, since sadly all of the pubs remain closed, Matthew and I will be sitting in our respective front rooms with a bottle of Merlot and raising a glass to raising standards. Hopefully we can reoccupy our usual corner in the Westminster Arms soon. Remember, do look after yourselves, do stay at home, it does save lives. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find every episode on iTunes, YouTube, and Spotify. The views expressed by each guest in the podcast are their own. They do not represent the opinions of the Parliamentary Review, Westminster Publications, Lord Pickles, Lord Blunkett, David Curry, or any other guest on the podcast. If you'd like to know more about the Parliamentary Review, please visit www.theparliamentaryreview.co.uk.